Hello and welcome to the SRF podcast. I'm Ollie and I'm Ben. If you're watching on YouTube, please remember to like the video, subscribe to the channel, and let us know in the comments what guest you'd like to see on the podcast next. Or if you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five star review. It really does help us out. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the SRF podcast. I'm Ollie Ballinger. With me is co host Ben Williamson. How are you, Ben? I'm okay, mate. I'm roasting because you keep making me wear this jumper on our podcast and I'm so hot. But other than that, I am fine. Thank you. Delightful. Well, you look good. So that's important. Cheers, mate. With us today is uh, Stuart Carrington. We're very lucky to have him with us today. Stu, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for the invite. I'm not in a jumper, so I'm more comfortable. But you're getting a jumper, which is more important, right? We will send you a jumper. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Tremendous. So, Stu, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about uh, you? Sure, yeah. So, I'm a senior lecturer in sport pedagogy at St. Mary's University in Twickenham. And my area of research, uh, I'm currently studying a PhD uh, in it at the moment, is on officiating. Um, it's such a broad area. Um, and I guess the area that I'm particularly interested in is like, how referees regulate emotions that's particularly important in contributing to the actions and decisions that they make and take. And in addition to that, I'm also the author of the book Blowing the Whistle, The Psychology of Football Refereeing, um, which I wrote prior to uh, starting the PhD. Tremendous. Yes, Amazing. It's a good book. A really insightful, uh, thought-provoking read that is. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun to write and, uh, and to research as well. It started off, you know, relatively small project and then grew and grew and grew. Was, was that always a dream to write a book or did you just one day go, no, oh, I'm going to write a book? No, uh, pretty much that one. Yeah. So it, it wasn't like a lifelong ambition or anything like that. The story goes, I was, uh, so yeah, new father. Um, and if anyone's got a young newborn, they'll know that you don't really plan to sleep. You plan to get <laughs> pockets of time where it's quiet. And I guess it's my personality. I'm just curious about a lot of things. And football has always been, you know, my passion and and an interest. And I found myself asking questions. I guess most football fans have asked themselves at one point or another, uh, you know, are referees influenced by the home team, for instance? Uh, If someone's got a reputation as a diver, does that help or hinder them when they're uh, trying to win fouls in their favour and so on and so forth? And I kind of had those questions, uh, and like I mentioned, I guess most people have, and I just started thinking, you know, in those little pockets of time when my, my son would fall asleep at like 10 in the evening, I would think, well, we'll be up in a couple of hours anyway. I'll just start reading up around this. So I started, then I started to make notes, and before I knew it, I had a couple of chapters where I thought, well, that'd be quite a good chapter, that, like, you know, you know, talk about home advantage, for instance, or the amount of yellow cards that might get shown to one team over another. And the more that I engaged with literature, Frankly, it's just more fascinating. I found it, and it, and it, I, I think I dispelled like a lot of myths um, around officiating, and it was really interesting to kind of you know investigate further. And it's just kind of spawned from there and grown from there. Really. So, give us one one myth that you think you've uh, you've got rid of your your best one, biggest one. Well, I think the one myth that I got rid of. Uh, well. <laughs> Say got rid of perhaps answered a little bit more thoroughly is that are refs arrogant? So that's the one that uh, we've all said and we've all thought probably before. Uh, so one of my chat, one of the book chapters is like 
narcissistic control freaks. And um, I wanted to kind of answer that question. And when I, what I wanted to do was make everything as, as evidence driven. So everything had to be kind of couched in support. And I didn't want just people's opinions. And, or I wanted to investigate people's opinions. So one thing I found was, you know, with referees. So on the one side, yeah, referees tend to be sort of very confident in their ability. So I found that, you know, it's in the 90th percentile that referees interviewed or surveyed tend to think they're better at officiating than other referees. So on the one side, you know, is that arrogant? Well, I probably wouldn't call it arrogance. I think arrogance is without foundation. Um, it's probably how I would define that term. I would say it's someone experiencing high levels of self-efficacy. So their previous experience has mostly been positive. Uh, they're particularly quite resilient people. And then in addition to that, they tend to grow and develop as they progress. So I kind of think it depends on the definition of arrogance. And then I guess the other point I make in that chapter is, do we want referees that aren't particularly confident in their ability? Because if you need to go out and control 22 highly competitive athletes um, that are being kind of, you know, urged on by a crowd or discouraged quite loudly by a crowd, depending on the location of the match, you know, do you want someone that's going to be easily influenced or do you want to have someone that's really confident in their ability? So I think I kind of turn that question around on, on the reader a little bit. I think that's amazing because I think that's probably one of the most things that I've said, right? Uh, ref, you're arrogant, I can't speak to you, can't do this. When actually there needs to be that fine line of, I, 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 but I'm trying not to be arrogant. I've just got to be, you, the law states you can't, or competition rule states you can't talk to me now. Do it in the dressing room, do it in the tunnel. I'm not being arrogant. I will talk to you all day long. There just has to be the appropriate time and place, right? Completely agree. I mean, one of the, it's one of the things we you know, sort of discuss in the book is exactly that. It's, it's, you know, what do fans really want? So in the intro, I talk about like the importance of subjectivity in laws. So a wonderful philosopher, whose work I draw upon a little bit is called Bernard Suits, and he came up with like criteria for the definition of sport. And one of the definitions of sport is there needs to be an element of luck. And if you think about it, that actually makes sport quite appealing because otherwise just the best team would always win, right? Um, so there'd be no point playing the games. Whereas, you know, the way the ball bounces could take a lucky deflection, like anything like that might make the sport a little bit more fascinating, more of a spectacle. And of course, you know, that includes sort of Officiating decisions, and this is partnered by another philosopher, a guy called Seth Bordner, who wrote about the subjectivity of laws and about how you can make laws really objective. So um, a few few years ago, Gary Lineker was an advocate of saying any time the ball hits a player's hand, just say it's handball, and then you remove all elements of subjectivity. And then what happened is, you know, for the very short period where that seemed to be implemented, no one liked it because it kind of went against the ethos of the game. So we kind yeah. of like this gray area, this area of subjectivity, and that provides us with a little bit of luck or fortune in, in, in the way that games are run and the outcome of the games, which are appealing from a spectator point of view. And then also there's kind of important lessons of that. You mentioned like referees not wanting to be, I can't talk to this referee. I think what people really mean is, you know, I can't get my own way with this person. Um, people demand explanations. And then you know, as we've seen with the referee mics up series that's coming out now, you know, we hear like the VAR explanations and people don't accept them. And it's, well, you don't have to agree with it, but hopefully you can see the process. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah I think it, that's really, really interesting. It's really interesting. In your research around this particular subject, you know, I referee futsal, Ben referees football. Do you find that this kind of uh, principle is the same across all sports or, or, or team sports? 
So we find the issues that referees face is, is the same against all sports because there's similarities. So first of all, I guess when people talk about officials, they use that term as, a, as an umbrella term. So every referee umpire is a sports official. So true to an extent, but there are certain classifications. So uh, a researcher Claire McMahon and colleagues kind of established different criteria or categories for different officials. So football, basketball, uh, netball, uh, rugby, the, those sort of sports like typical invasion games, they're classified as interactor officials. So interactor officials are those that they tend to move quite a lot and the movement replicates the movement of the players. They also have to make many decisions in uh, quite a short period of time, and those decisions are different in nature. So some are subjective, some are objective. Mm -hmm. They tend to be like purposeful, so it doesn't really depend like kind of how it was done, and it depends like what was done. So you judge, you react to something, but then also you also need to communicate quite frequently with the players involved in order to try to manage the game. So there's quite a lot of interaction. That interaction can be verbal, it can be non-verbal, hand signals, eye contact, for instance. And you're constantly moving to try to get a better position of, to, to best view the action. Then we have different types of officials. So monitors, for instance, uh, a good monitor uh, example would be like a line judge, um, uh, excuse me, a volleyball umpire. Um, so someone that watches what happens and might react to certain things, but they don't really need to communicate too much with the, uh, with the participants. And then finally, we have what's called a reactor, which would be a line judge in tennis. So you're just reacting to whether the ball went in or out and like kind of that's your role. Um, so you're just kind of making a, an objective call. And of course there's different challenges. So a reactor has to have very high levels of um, perceptual cognitive skills. Whereas someone, maybe like a gymnastics judge, uh, which is a good example of a monitor, they need to be able to see what's done, but they always need to see how things are done. So they're judging against like technical abilities and then interactors tend to need very good communication skills. Um, in order to convey the message. So like in refereeing circles, you hear this term like selling the decision. Uh, that's correct, like selling the decision is quite important. And so sometimes it's not just about the decision you make, it's like a continual loop. So how you present that decision might affect future decisions. We call it sequential effects, which I discussed in the book. So what I found was all these kind of principles, all these different like tenets of officiating, relate to all different sports and we find similarities in the challenges and demands but also in things like abuse for instance which people tend to think is predominantly directed towards football officials um, whereas you know we know that abuse is reported in rugby netball hockey basketball baseball the list goes on and do you think with some of those things that you mentioned around um the different types of officials those that need to like the team sports who need to do lots of communication and those yeah. that are the reactors. Do you ever think that technology will replace some of those? Because like some of those roles are very, very black and white, right? Very factual versus the ones that are very, uh, you need a, it will be difficult to automate such a process. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good question. Um, so I guess the short answer is no, I don't think it will be replaced because I think that actually an appealing aspect of sports, as I mentioned, that element of chance, that human element, However, the sort of slight caveat to the answer is it depends on the nature of the role. So like goal line technology, for instance, um, works so well and is so welcomed because it's an objective decision. So if you were talking about like being a line judge in tennis, played outside, it's quite hot, it's quite tiring. Um, you know, would we like to see a time where you know, chips are put into balls so you know whether the ball was in or out? Um, and that might be relatively simple to do. 
Um, I say that because I'm not involved in the technology behind it. It might be extremely complicated. In principle, that could work. So we might be able to not have line judges and we have an objective decision every time. Uh, I guess, you know, perhaps the other side of that is, is that an entertaining part of the sport? And I think when we talk about officiating, I, I'm very much invested in the holistic approach to officiating. So that's not just when we train officials, that doesn't just mean we need to train the whole person um, as opposed to just the official. Well, like coaches will now talk about, you know, they're people that play football or whatever sport they do rather than just footballers or rugby players. You, you coach the person. I think we need to coach the referee. Also, when we talk about officiating, we can talk about from a psychological point of view, which is my area of interest. But you know, there's also physiological aspects of, of officiating. There's like social aspects, so communication aspects of officiating. And there's also philosophical aspects. And I'm quite interested in that. And I think that that element of chance is, a, is, a, is very philosophically appealing. So I, I think that's actually a, an attractive part of sports that we wouldn't want to get rid of. I think if we look at, I think you touched on motivation a little bit there as well. Yeah. So if we if if we believe or there's suggestions around loads of things are going to go digital and we're going to get rid of line persons, for example, because we can put a chip on the ball. Yeah. Do you think then that would affect the motivation of those new officials coming through at 14, 15, 16? Excuse me if I've got the age wrong in, in different sports. But do, do, could that then affect the motivation to go, well, actually, there's no point me wanting to be a... Premier League assistant referee and that be my goal because they're going to semi-automate offsides, we're not going to have and maybe we're not going to have them. Yeah, great question Ben. Uh, one of the chapters in the book that I discuss is around like, motivation of officials, like why would anyone want to do it because it's a pretty <laughs> tough gig um, I guess the one thing, the, the people have different motivations for doing anything, so you might have different motivations for doing your day job, for officiating for doing podcasts and yes, like monetary reward is a motivating factor for some people, and we can't kind of ignore that. Um, you, know, you mentioned like 14, 15 year olds, you know, taking up the whistle and going out on the weekend to referee the game. You know, I'm sure that you know the 25, 30 pound, whatever it, like match fee, whatever it may be, is an appealing aspect uh, for people of that age. Um, and of course, as you progress up the ladder, you know, particularly at the highest level, you know, the monetary rewards are quite generous. That said. It's, a, it's definitely a mistake to assume that the only reason people are interested in becoming an official is like monetary gain. And the one uh, motivational kind of attribute that every official in every sport reports is a love of the game. And there's this is kind of a really robust finding in the literature. So while some people might do it you know, to keep fit, for instance, might be another factor. Um, some people like the challenge, you know, so it's quite the demands to kind of control everyone um, uh, and, and to come, come off the game thinking you've had a good game. That might be more relevant for some than others, so an element of flexibility there. But the one robust finding is this, I love the game. And this is really important because we know that people that have a high intrinsic motivation for what they do, there's psychological benefits that make performance, uh, that might enhance performance by extension. So that's, they tend to strategize more, i.e. they tend to think about their own time. They tend to persist more, so when things go wrong, they don't give up. Um, and they tend to um, try to uh, focus their attention and efforts more onto what they actually want to achieve. So their actions become what we call goal congruent or just more aligned with their goals. And if you think about it, you know, this is true in everything. You know, when you're learning to drive, for instance, if you're not particularly interested in learning to drive and not bothered, you know, how much effort do you put in? How much do you think about it in your free time? 
but if you really want to pass your driving test, you know, you read up on the highway code in your free time. You think about the mistakes you made previously and that time where you didn't have a good lesson because you stalled it or you messed up your parallel part. You know, you just try again next time. So we know that officials that frequently are criticised, in fact, you're going to be criticised more often than praised, um, you know, they, they need high levels of intrinsic motivation. So I don't think it would affect motivation too much because people get into officiating because they love the game. I think what it may do is it may affect motivation long term. Uh, so are people more likely to persist over the long term? It's actually kind of the next avenue of research that I'm undertaking at the moment that looks at this long term um, motivation of officials. So do you think that there is an interesting correlation to those referees that start at 14? So like I, my team folded at 14 and I thought the next best okay. thing was to referee. So I went mm -hmm. in referee and then we find referees from 14, let's say to 18, 19 referee. And then all of a sudden they stop. Do you mm -hmm. think the love for the sport is a, is a considerable factor in that? Uh, I, yes, but I don't think it's because they've fallen out of love with the sport per se. I think it's um, they become disenchanted because of the actions of others. So I think, you know, abuse is the word that people will use in, in literature. It's typically labelled as problematic social interaction. And we know that the more problematic social interaction that we incur, the more our motivation um, to persist is affected. And we know that with interactor officials, this is the predominant reason that people withdraw. So, you know, we spoke about just previously about like the importance of money. So of course, you know, when people you know, get to their late teens, early twenties and so on and so forth, you know, money might become a more overriding factor and they might decide, well, I'm going to dedicate my time to doing other things that's going to make me more money. So that can be a contributing factor. What we do know is that tends to be the case more with monitors and reactors because the type of sports that need to recruit those officials, uh, they tend to be more on a voluntary basis or a monetary reward pretty low. When we know with interactor officials, it's problematic social interaction. So we know that the more of these interactions that officials have, the more it will affect their intrinsic motivation. You, uh, it's really interesting. We don't want to talk too much around abuse because we could probably, that's a whole new podcast and yeah. we can do doing differently um, but something you've mentioned before like the impact of culture um it fascinates me slightly so like holland uh, like 2.2 percent of officials say they experience um uh negative social interactive yeah. or, or the words the the, the 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 nicer words of putting it um but whereas in england it's like 60 odd percent mm. like what what are we doing so wrong or what are holland doing so right mm. to to have those numbers so i think it's important to say that it's not like kind of uh unique to the uk that these issues occur. We know that these issues occur elsewhere. We know that, for instance, in the United States, they're experiencing very, very high levels of uh, poor uh, retention rates in officials because people are dropping out, particularly in uh, basketball and baseball, because of the level of abuse that officials get. They just don't want to do it. It's not worth the money, it's not worth the time or the effort. So these, these things aren't sort of shows the UK. Of course, I, I cite some research in the book that states, you know, look at Holland, France, and the UK, and, Holland's rates of like verbal abuse is significantly lower. In terms of what they're doing, there's, again, I, I mentioned this like holistic approach. There's lots of different ways we can explain it. So when we talk about psychology, we need to understand where that's come from. So we know that there are historical constraints. So for instance, um, the whole reason that referees exist in the UK is because when the game went professional, 
the captains were no longer trusted to make decisions. So, like, captains in football, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to use the word like, useless because I think off the pitch uh, and, like, you know, uh, structuring training and, and cohesion, those elements, captains are very, very important. But on the pitch, you don't really need a captain. They have no special kind of privileges. Um, it's a total myth, for instance. They're allowed to talk to the referee or not allowed to talk to the referee. There's, there's nothing in the rules to state that. The reason captains exist is because they were the ones that had to make a decision when it wasn't clear what the outcome was. And when the game went professional and essentially there was money at stake, uh, they were just, it was decided that they couldn't be trusted anymore. So there was an arbiter on the sidelines that had to watch. And then it, it was realised that, well, actually, if I'm standing on the side, I can't really see what's going on. So I have to be running around with the players. And that's how the referee was born. Now, football was codified by... Cambridge Old Boys, and football's traditionally a working class game. So when it was first kind of became professional, the people that played it might have struggled to read and write. Literary levels would have been significantly poorer. We needed someone to be able to read and write to officiate the game. So they tend to be of the upper class, and the players tend to be of lower class. So there was a class dispute there. So there was already kind of them and us attitudes towards officials. Um, I'm not sure if you wanted to know all this before you asked, asked the question. And then what we found was there were other reasons people distrusted officials. So, for instance, people would lose money like wagering on football games. And for most people that were wagering money, if they were to lose that bet, it might kind of make a significant impact to their livelihood or their lifestyle that week. And so we need to blame someone. And, of course, referees do make mistakes. Never met one that says they don't. So, all of course, they make the right decision, but people perceive it to be a mistake. And they blame the referee. It's not a new thing. Uh, a, uh, another researcher, Tom Webb, down at the University of Portsmouth, has done some great articles I cite uh, quite frequently in the book, um, looking at like referee abuse from like the late 1800s, early 1900s, pre-war abuse, um, public abuse in newspapers. Like it's always happened. I do think that now this media scrutiny is so heightened and the financial implications on success and failure are so heightened that that has added that layer of kind of investigation into referee decisions. And you touch on the role of the cap- captain in football. It's very different in rugby. And do you think that yeah. the way that that operates affects the abuse levels? Uh, yeah, really interesting questions. One I get a lot. So we know that rugby officials report levels of abuse. So we shouldn't think that like, you know, officiating rugby is kind of like a utopia for sports officials because it absolutely isn't. And uh, officials in rugby will report that as well. It, it's different. So there are certain things that are kind of tolerated and certain things that are not tolerated. So, for example, dissent is, a, is the obvious one. So uh, if a rugby player uh, was to demonstrate dissent, um, then it would be punished kind of immediately. Now, we call this the ethos of the game. So a wonderful researcher called Fred D'Agostini in the late 80s um, kind of used this term ethos of the game. The the problem is it's kind of hard to measure. It's kind of hard to define what that means. But essentially, it's what the game expects. So when people talk about morality, they think that laws are written based upon what's right and wrong. But laws tend to be interpreted based on what the game expects, not what's right or wrong. So for instance, you might have uh, a really good example uh, is where Michael Oliver sent off, um, sorry, excuse me, didn't send, well, he did end up sent off, but he awarded Real Madrid a penalty in injury time at a game at the Bernabeu against Juventus. 
and it was the second leg of a Champions League game. And Madrid won the first leg uh, in Turin, 3-0. So everyone kind of thought it would be a walkover. And in the Bernabeu, Juventus got it to 3-1. One, one, we're winning 3-0, so they brought it back to 3-3. And then in injury time, uh, when everyone was expecting to go to extra time, Oliver awarded Madrid a penalty for a push in the, in the box. And Buffon uh, protested so vehemently and so loud, uh, Oliver showed him a red card. Now, the two really interesting things about that was in the press conference afterwards, Buffon said, in that moment, he needs to realise I should be able to say anything I want to him because I'm that enraged and that passionate about what I'm doing. He just needs to accept that's the game. Now, that's a good example of like sporting ethos right there. It's he believes that the game expects referee abuse. Now, I think that everyone would agree Buffon certainly did go too far and the red card was warranted. But the other kind of revealing thing about this was that uh, many referees, and I cite this in the book, uh, labelled that a brave decision by Oliver, not only to award the penalty, but to send Buffon off. And that reveals this ethos of the game, i.e. in certain situations, you may want to be more lenient because the game expects you to be. I think that's changing and it will change, but you can't change overnight. We've already seen that this year. You know, if you ask for a yellow card, you're going to get one. Referees implement it. And then what happens? The media uh, spectators will start to criticise the referee. Oh, you can't give a yellow card for that. And they say, well, that's soft. And, you know, use language like this. So I think that that just shows kind of how reinforced uh, and buttressed that ethos is over a long period of time. And, and that comes from history, culture, many, many areas. How do you think that affects like the like, so we see that on TV we see Oliver doing these things we see it in the Premier League we see it at international stages yeah. how what is the correlation between that and dog and duck on a Sunday morning with a 15 16 year old referee that do, do they relate should they relate should we be doing something different because it's not worth millions of pounds and mm-hmm. actually it's a 15 year old's level of like experience in that like what do you think yeah, great question. I think um, the first part is, do they relate? Yes, undoubtedly. Uh, again, really robust, rigorous findings suggest that what goes on at the highest level repeats itself at the lowest level again. Um, probably more with children, but don't be fooled into thinking you don't see that with adults. How many adults do you see now cutting the holes in the back of the socks or wearing tennis socks, and, you know, whatever it may be, because they see like professionals do it. Uh, my son, every time he scores a goal, like he'll do a Ronaldo celebration or celebration, <laughs> things like that. Um, so, you know, these, these seem like really trivial examples, but what do they do is they just support a theory of behaviorism. Um, and the most famous kind of theory of behaviorism, behaviorism excuse me, is called social learning theory. So, essentially, when we see significant others, we tend to copy it. Of course, football fans will hold players, um, managers, coaches, whatever, as significant others because they are invested and interested in the game. And therefore, we know that that kind of trickles down. Interesting, what it does, it just reinforces, you know, like this ethos of, you know, the referees are so-and-so, you know, that chant is just, just perpetuated because people hear it, people repeat it. Uh, your next part of the question was, you know, should it? Um, okay, well, perhaps not because the games are different. Um, one of like FIFA's MOs uh, a couple of decades ago when technology was first being touted, so before there's any kind of technological advances in, in officiating how the games run, was they wanted to be avoided because they wanted to keep the game the same at the highest level and uh, the lowest level. But we know that's not the case anymore. So at Premier League level, for instance, the 
the equipment used, the technology used is very, very different. And also like the expectancy. So what do we expect regarding certain decisions might be quite different. And certainly from my perspective, as, as a practicing official now, that I became qualified as kind of research for the book and frankly found it really enjoyable. I now find that people will appeal for decisions because they see it like kind of on, on television. Um, and it may not correlate very well to the level that they're playing. What level are you now? I'm only level seven. I, 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 I qualified just, as I said, like I remember going to my um, sort of local uh, FA and signing up on the referee course um, in what was it, 2018, I want to say, um, and thought, yeah, I'll sort of give it a go. And I just wanted to do a few games because I really wanted to see what it was like. Um, and I wanted to kind of test out some of the things that I've written about in the book. And um, just really enjoyed it, actually. Um, and, and there's sort of like Ollie's sort of like mentioned previously about like people might stop playing and then sort of get into refereeing. You know, I was just kind of too old to play now and don't have really have the time, the flexibility of time to commit to training and every like, games every weekend. So to be able to keep your hand in, because I just love the game. It's nice to be involved. Have you found that your perspective of football has changed because you've become a referee? Oh, 100%. And it's funny you ask that because I was just talking to someone about this before the podcast. Like, I enjoy, honestly, I enjoy the game so much more now. Um, I don't get irate at referee decisions. Um, I just, it, you know, I think what it, what it does is you may disagree with a decision. So there are times where I'll see uh, a referee make a decision and I might disagree with it or agree with it. And it goes against what I would have done or what I think. And what it does is, one, you realise, well, we kind of take this quite putative approach. We think that there's a right and a wrong to everything. It's very black and white. And we realise that there's this huge shade of grey um, in, into like how a decision could or should be made, particularly with the subjective nature of the lots of laws. And so what you do is you start to look more at the process. So rather than looking at the outcome, I certainly start to think, like, why did he or she make that decision. And 99 times out of 100, I can't say 100, because there are times where I just think, I have no idea like, why <laughs> she did that. And I just disagree, right? But, but 99 times out of 100, I think, I disagree, but I can see why they did that. I mean, the, I was just chatting to a colleague of mine about the Kai Havertz like, penalty appeal for Arsenal against yeah. Man at the weekend. And it's, yeah. I can totally see why that penalty is awarded, and I can totally see why that's rescinded. Um, yep. And then the question always comes is they say, is it a penalty? And I'm like, well, you know, you're treating that like every decision has a definite answer. There are some decisions that are 50 50. Um, yeah. You know, it's, and then people say, well, what would you have given? It's like, well, I don't know, because I, I don't know what I would have seen at that person's position. What position would I have been in? I don't know the temperature of the game. There's all these different areas that will influence decision making that you don't become fully kind of au okay fait with when you start practicing. So, sorry, Ollie, long answer. I didn't mention on my ramble. Uh, yeah, it's totally changed my perspective of the game. And I just enjoy it. I genuinely enjoy watching football more. I just watch the game now and just accept the decisions that go for or against my team. Yeah, A question I've got so... for you based on that. Do you think referees have to have empathy for the game? And is that right? Should it just be the law states this and that is the law done? Or... Referees have some personality. You talked about temperature of the game. You talked about other like contributing factors. Yeah. Is uh, should empathy be one of them? 
Yeah, I'm smiling because I'm just writing a presentation for a talk I'm doing tomorrow night uh, here at the university, and that's going to feature in there. Okay, so like there, are, that's the question that I get asked all the time. And even this morning in a meeting, someone just made a joke saying referees should just apply law. I'm like, okay. So that, that <laughs> I mentioned earlier on about uh, you need to take a holistic approach, and this is where people, you know, people don't want to do it, and that's fine. It might not be interested in it, but seeing as we ask. So there's one approach called formalism. So formalism is where a referee or someone believes that you just in, you just apply law very rigidly and very robustly. Okay. Now, for instance, that would work in some areas, but it doesn't work in others. The benefit of formalism is it guides referees. It gives you a very very clear answer to every question. So if this happens, I do this, and this is how I apply. The difficulty with that is one, there are some laws that are very subjective in nature, so there's not a definitive answer. So for instance, like reckless or careless, well, there are gonna be some tackles that might be very borderline. You, some people might perceive it as reckless, some as careless, and so that, that that's a struggle there. The other one is when we talk about successful officiating, the go-to answer is, is decision-making, i.e. did the referee make correct or incorrect decisions? Uh, an Australian researcher called Scotty Russell, uh, he, he identifies four tenets of officiating, and one is fairness, uh, one is decision-making, one is safety, and the other one is entertainment, or like spectacle. Now, someone, and I remember distinctly my director of studies for PhD asked me this and said, the referee's not like part of the show. I'm like, okay, that's not really what it means. What it means is this, right? So anyone listening that thinks, yeah, just, just apply the laws. The letter of the law in football is that a throw-in has to be taken at the exact point it went off the field of play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ask yourself, if you're like a Man United fan at Old Trafford, and every time there's a throw-in, the referee makes sure that the throw-in is taken at the exact point it went out of play, how frustrated are you? Because Run over and get a spray out. We'll take it <laughs> Could you imagine? Like, every time, like No, no, no. It's, it's, it's three inches back. It's three inches back. Every time a free kick, it says in law, the free kick has to be at the spot where the incident occurred. Imagine if the referee blew the whistle every time. You, every fan in the same side, like, just let him get on with it. Like, it doesn't matter if it's a yard ahead. It doesn't matter if it's two yards behind, okay? So that's the weakness of formalism. And there, of course, there are incidences where we don't really know what the law is because very freak occurrences pop up. So formalism's flawed in that sense. The alternative is conventionalism. So conventionalism is kind of like what you're leaning towards, or not maybe personally leaning towards, but you're suggesting it's like empathy. So this is like, what does the game expect me to do? So does the game expect Michael Oliver to show Buffon like a little bit of leniency and empathy here? Okay, I can see you're really angry. I'll let you vent. I'll let you get it out of your system. And then we'll just get on with the game. Or not. Now, of course, empathy is going to kind of help you to an extent. One of the ways it's going to help you is we know there's a wonderful researcher, Ian Cunningham, who looks a lot about, he calls it face work. So how do we help players save face when we penalise them or punish them? And how do we preserve face when we make decisions as well? And how do we communicate that? I think that's really important because a limitation in some theoretical models of decision-making is that we think that as soon as the decision is made, that's it over. Whereas actually every decision will influence the next decision. So we know that player acceptance is really, really important because it helps make more accurate decisions moving forward. So I think that 
the answer is this kind of interactions approach where sometimes we just need to go, of course, we can't ignore the laws of the game or it becomes, it ceases to be the game. At the same time, we have to appreciate those other tenets of fairness, of safety, and of the spectacle that's going to help contribute to an entertaining sport, which is what everyone wants. The players, the coaches, the fans, we want to be entertained. And so officials like kind of play their part in that. So I think that by showing empathy, by getting players to accept decisions more readily helps officials. At the same time, that doesn't mean that we excuse misdemeanors that violate the rules of the game. That's fantastic. I think so um, for that was, that was the thought that comes into my head, and I think we've all done it from time to time, is what does football want? What does futsal want in the situation when you're making a decision? Like, you know, you try and smell it as the referee going, what, what does the game want? And it's not already directly correlated to the law, despite something might being objective, you know? And I think the examples you give around the throw-in is probably case in point because you'd, you'd make an entertaining game very unentertaining if all of a sudden a particular referee became very focused on going, this is the way it is or, or not, as the case may be. So fascinating. But we spoke uh, a lot about all these different things around abuse, love of the game, and the expectations on a referee. Like, do we just accept that these referees have got to cope with all of this? And is there things that should be in place that to help referees cope with it? You know, I've had a bad game. And, you know, my motivation factor might have reduced because it's been a bad day at the office. Yeah. So we, great question. And I'm pleased you asked it because actually the area of research I'm really interested in. So I... I mentioned again about this holistic approach. We know that there's lots of research around kind of how we might improve decision-making skills, perceptual cognitive skills, communication skills, and officiating. What we tend to ignore is the person. Uh, I published an article uh, in the International Journal of Sports Psychology last year where I interviewed three FIFA and UEFA level officials around their experiences, and we identified certain like constraints and training we know that one constraint on performance is the environment that they train in. And what was identified is, that, you know, bear in mind, FIFA, UEFA level, very high level officials, there's a lack of psychological support. Now, that's not to say that's the case everywhere. And we certainly know that some refereeing bodies do offer some psych support. I think there are areas where it can be developed and improve further. I'm particularly interested in, in um, like CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapeutic approaches to developing officials. And, and there's certain reasons for that. So the first one is actually performance. We tend to find that people that function well as individuals tend to perform well. And one of the referees I interviewed in that paper, uh, the, the quote that he kept and sort of said that I just laughed and cite frequently, and it's actually the title of my presentation tomorrow, is the person arrives before the referee. So how he or she um, arrives at the stadium, sort of their state of mind, we can talk about a million different kind of theoretical perspectives here, uh, couched in psychology, challenge threat states, for instance, um, levels of anxiety, levels of depression, levels of healthy concern. So all of those things are going to influence behaviours because we know that cognitions and thoughts influence behaviours. And therefore we can take these CBT approaches to try to help insulate people um, and to you know, promote better performance. And then the other side, of course, is by doing so, we also help look after the well-being of officials and therefore help them become more resilient to abuse. 
one kind of avenue of that's been proposed regarding solutions to abuse is like zero tolerance. And I'd certainly not advocate that. And yeah, like sin bins for dissent, for instance, are, I think are a good idea. Um, and I really like the initiatives this year that we see in the top flight around dissent and, and cautioning for dissent more readily. That said, that's an ideal world solution. Like, I do not think you are ever going to fully eradicate abuse. Now, there's sort of, you know, so one person might say, well, you know, so yeah, that's, you know, we have to focus on the abuser. And yes, we should, we should be trying to minimize that. What we can also do is we can help protect the person that's on the receiving end. And that's not to excuse the abuse, but that's just to help protect them, to give them the tools that they might need to insulate themselves from the negative impact of the abuse. So I think that this is an area for development in officiating, and it's one that uh, we're looking to publish some research ASAP um, regarding some measures around that. And then I'm currently looking at some research around beliefs of officials. Um, hopefully you guys can plug the, the, the link to the survey uh, on, on your social media channels uh, later on. That'd be sure. great. And we can associate that with motivation. So something just popped into my head, like it kind of links back into what you've just said and something you mentioned earlier. So the referees have a love of a game, which we all know, and that's why we do it. And then we talk about uh, the the, re the person arrives before the referee, right? So just thinking of the level I operate, maybe uh, we we arrive at the ground a couple of hours, hour and a half before kickoff, etc. There's very much uh, this us and them approach. We're the officials, you're the club, you're the team officials, etc. Do you think there's something that could be done that together we should spend 15 20 minutes before a game having a brew talking about football talk like we meet the secretaries or the people that meet us at the ground no problem that's all really lovely um but the people that offer the abuse or the constructive unconstructive comments if, if there was a bit more we're actually both people and we both love the sport we just have some different areas of love is that something that maybe could prevent some abuse or some negative comments throughout the game? Because we realise that Stuart, the referee, is actually a person who loves football, who loves refereeing, who who loves it from a different angle. Is that good? Is that bad? Could that help? Could it not? It's, yeah, it's a great. Well, I mentioned at the beginning, like I always want to give like evidence-driven answers and kind of avoid like opinion. And it's so the reason I say that is because there's not too much research on whether that would improve levels of abuse or not. However, from personal experience, we know that it certainly does. So there's been times, of course, like, oh, I make a mistake like every game. Um, you know, I wish I didn't, but it happens. Or certainly, as I mentioned before, it might not even be a mistake. Someone perceives it as a mistake. Yeah. And of course, they know that I think if you're, I think integrity is really important as a referee. So I think that people that, uh, or teams that I have officiated will know that I work hard, um, and will try to be as fair as possible in every situation. And therefore, if they feel it's the wrong decision, they'll just attribute it to an honest mistake. It's interesting, we did a webinar uh, at the university where we had um, uh, Joe Thompson, who's a Canadian official, actually, he was the, actually the um, uh, assistant referee in the England-Columbia game, um, uh, where England finally won on penalties. So he was the assistant referee for that game. And he was saying, Similar to what you were saying, someone asked him, what can you do to decrease the level of abuse? And he said, like, optics are really important for an official. So he said, if I found that maybe dissent was kind of creeping up a little bit because I worked harder. So I just put in that extra 5%, 
like a few more sprints, um, you know, kind of really make an effort to get into, into good positions. Because what people will find is if I made a mistake or if they disagreed with it, they'd be like, well, I can't be too harsh because this guy's really trying. Like he's really working hard. Whereas he goes, the times where maybe I was a little bit fat on my heels, that didn't help me. So I think that can help. I think there would be some evidence, but maybe that's an error for research. So people listening might go, okay, that's an error I'll look into. Um, I guess what I would say is before the game, it's probably more important that as an officiating team, you have a pre-performance routine uh, and you go through those steps before each game. And of course, there's a wealth of literature out there that can help people construct those. Or you can speak to researchers like myself to help you construct those, but it's important that you have one and it's bespoke for you. So we, I think it's really clear and obvious to everyone that like levels of decision-making accuracy is something that makes someone different from being, let's say, good versus the great. Levels of fitness is a big contributing factor. Being organized off, off the pitch admin, if you like. But then we've got this element of like psychology where someone's mental state will significantly affect whether they are a, a good referee and a great referee. What, what, what separates the good from the great and how do referees improve on said skill? Because I think it's still relatively new and it's ever evolving. So I think sometimes people might assume that there's a type of person that needs to be a referee. So this is the kind of characteristics you need to have. There's not really too much evidence that would suggest that's true. I guess the reason being is football is played by everyone. It's played in every country around the world. It's played by men, it's played by women, it's played by old people, it's played by young people. So people are eclectic, so you need to have an eclectic group of officials because not you know what's good for one person isn't necessarily good for another. Uh, I remember Jermaine Genus, for instance, saying, he didn't actually ever want to talk to a referee. And he, he was like, I never asked a referee to explain a decision. I didn't want to know, because you blew the whistle, I just, I just want to get on with it. Um, and he's like, when a referee wanted to explain it to me, he's like, I understand why they're trying this, but I don't care. It goes, it actually kind of annoyed me more. Whereas another player, um, and you know, I cite some examples in the book, and there's, you know, I'm sure you know, any newspaper every weekend will kind of cite those sort of players. They're kind of like, I have to know, like, why you made every decision. Or, or it's just going to kind of you know, eat away at me. So people are different. So you need to have different qualities. That said, there are certain qualities which tend to be quite robust. So for instance, we know that successful referees like most sports performers, they tend to approach games with what we call a challenge state. So a challenge state is essentially where you perceive that your resources, your abilities can exceed the demands of the situation. So am I capable of doing this essentially? And that's influenced by many things. We also know that referees tend to experience very high levels of intrinsic motivation. Love of the game is another way of putting that. So we know that that's a quality that referees like tend to share. And we also know that because of those two things together, challenge state, so positive appraisal and intrinsic motivation, those referees tend to experience or demonstrate qualities such as high work ethic, high levels of dedication. They communicate with peers, so they're actually in social conversations or what we call informal learning in psychological terms like like a little bit like now you know like we're kind of like-minded people in the sense that we have a mutual interest so we're just chatting about refereeing now we might disagree on certain aspects of refereeing but then that's good for us because it challenges our thoughts and then we can start to construct new ones or reject them entirely maybe we learn something your listeners i assume will be interested in refereeing to an extent or they probably would be listening 
And they might listen to some of this and think that was a really nice point. I liked that. I didn't agree with Stu on this one. So I reject that, whatever it may be. But this is what we call informal learning. And people that have high levels of intrinsic motivation and successful people tend to embrace it. So I think those are more important qualities than qualities that people tend to think are good for refereeing. Uh, for instance, like you know, a really positive body language all the time or having, um, you know, uh, being very succinct uh, in communication because people are different. Yeah. Do you think then, if we're trying to identify the next Premier League referee, so somebody who's doing a referee course this, this coming weekend, yeah. somebody across the country in a few years' time will have to be the next Premier League referee. Yeah. That's how the world goes around. How, how, do we, how can we start identifying them now if there's no specific, or, or we're assuming there's no set characteristic characteristics that someone needs to have to go actually you could probably make it how do we do that it's such a great question so i think actually like what i would say is depends on the age so if someone is a bit like a footballer if someone's you know my background is coaching and people would say that all the time they're like you know you've got like a 12 year old like how do you identify a 12 year old that's you know going to be like the next big thing i was like i would never identify a 12 year old that's going to be the next big thing because they're too young and at that age i just want them enjoying like what they're doing and that sounds like an answer that's you know uh, like a vote winning answer actually there's a performance based kind of characteristic there as well and that's because we know the people that tend to enjoy things as i mentioned before they tend to persist more they tend to be more resilient they positively appraise they don't self-depreciate when things go wrong you know because you just enjoy doing it whereas if you don't enjoy doing it and you're only doing it because you want this end goal then of course what's going to happen if you want to be a footballer at 14 years old and that's what you don't particularly enjoy it because your end goal is like, I have to be a professional. And guess what? You know, when you miss that penalty, which is going to happen, like because everyone loses sometimes, uh, you know, you're now thinking, well, I'm rubbish, I'm not going to make it. It becomes very detrimental and it starts to very negatively affect your behaviors and actions. And there's a body of evidence to support this. And so, actually, like what I'd be looking for is, you know, who's persisting, who's showing enthusiasm, who's socializing with people in sort of similar like-minded groups because there's a lot to be said for informal learning and, and picking up points of development along the way and i think those are much more kind of important traits than any kind of physical or psychological one everything else will take care of itself and and interestingly another kind of with psychology is every now and again you come across what we call like a rigorous or robust finding so something that stands true across a body of work and one of those is the importance of experience so we know that referees that are experienced tend to not necessarily, well, well, they tend to make less mistakes. So that's a fact. But they also tend to become less influenced by social factors. So for instance, someone like Anthony Taylor, who is at you know, the top of the game uh, and a very experienced referee around the world uh, and has kind of been experienced in lots of different atmospheres and so on and so forth. If he goes and does you know, Man United v Liverpool, uh, one weekend with like 65,000 fans or whatever, like wanting decisions to go their way, he's going to be much more insulated from that impact than I am uh, as a very inexperienced referee in those circumstances. Mm. So that's why it's really important people enjoy what they do in order to improve performance. And just as a final note to that question, I'd say that's why it's really important, and I talk about this in the final part of my book, that the media and the fans appreciate their responsibility. Because if the media and the fans 
really want high performing officials, then we need to make that pyramid at the bottom as wide as possible. And we also need to make it as welcoming and as supportive and as facilitative as possible. Because unless, if we have people dropping out, we're going to have less and less people with the requisite level of experience needed to be an elite performer. What we're doing with every one of our guests on the YesRef podcast is we're going to ask them one question. And what we'd like to ask oh, you, no. Stu, is... <laughs> What's coming? <laughs> what we'd like to ask you is, if we was to give you a magic wand and you could change yeah. anything in refereeing today, what would it be? Yeah. Uh, it would be, I would eradicate the word, I just want consistency, because it's a total oxymoron. The word just signifies that it's easy, and consistency <laughs> is the hardest part of any skill. Uh, again, I mentioned sports coaching is my background. So when we talk about coach, like so skill acquisition, like how we get good at skills and how we might develop best practice, that's kind of like a particular area of interest of mine, okay? And it's a bit like this. So I'm rubbish at darts, okay? So James Madison would certainly beat me, right? Um, and <laughs> <laughs> I can throw a treble 20, like I've done it before, okay? So I know I'm physically capable of throwing a treble 20. I've never got 180 because I've never done it three times in a row. So that's consistency. So when we hear that term, I just want consistency, it assumes that consistency is the easy part of the skill. It's the opposite. It's the hardest part of the skill. It's the last thing you learn. Um, you know, it, and like a, when we talk about footballers, we see this reflected. At the top level of the game, is there much difference between, you know, like Harry Kane and Darwin Nunes and Mo Salah uh, whatever strike would be Lewandowski, whoever we're comparing here, right? The answer is like, no, they're all really good at football. They're all really good at finishing. They're all really good at getting into positions and heading and stuff like that. It's just what separates the elite from the very good, the very good to the good and so on is consistency. Someone like Harry Kane, for instance, does it at a phenomenally consistent rate, almost regardless of the environment that he's toying with. So, you know, I've, I've scored like a 25-yard screamer. I've, just, I've only done it twice. You know, it's like someone like Messi can do it every game. So that's what I would change. Brilliant. Yeah, so Brilliant. I love that answer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like throwing uh, three treble tw 20s is quite hard. I just want consistency on it. You've got to do it every time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just go and do it, on it. <laughs> just just really that. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, Stuart, where can... People find your book or your, your yeah, it's available at all good online uh, bookstores. I don't know if I can plug certain ones that you can always edit afterwards, but Amazon is on Goodreads, it's on, uh, but you have to order it online. Um, yeah, we'd be really appreciative. I tend to find the message hits harder when you buy 10 copies. <laughs> Do they get all 10 <laughs> signs? Can they come and find you again? Kind of them I'm more, more than happy to have, to sign them. I've had requests. Um, yeah, absolutely. So if, if people do buy them um, and, and want a signed copy, yeah, they can um, send send I'll send them an address. They can contact me. My email is at stuart.carrington at stmarys.ac.uk. Um, uh, you can find. You're going to be inundated now. Oh, sorry. You're going to get inundated now with your request. No problem at all. Uh, Hopefully, we can arrange one. We'll get one. We'll get one sent to you. We'll get one. You can sign it, and we'll give it away to a listener. Can we do that, Ollie? Of course. Can you make the logistics of that happen. Yeah, yeah. We'll do that. That's Great. fine. I'm on, I was going to say I'm on Twitter, but it's X now. It's at Stu Carrington, S T U Carrington zero seven. Um, people can contact me through there if they have any questions. 
Um, and I, I tend to just to talk about two things. I tend to just talk about officiating and Diego Maradona. Um, and that's pretty much it. And they're, they're the two things. They're Why two Diego things. Maradona? <laughs> just love Maradona. Like, just my favourite football ever. Totti's a close second. Uh, Maradona and Totti and refereeing. That's what you'll see from me if you follow me. Love that. Love that. Tremendous. Stuart, it's right, a it's- huge thank you very much for me. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate uh, it. Real pleasure, Stu, like taking your time out of your diary uh, and talking about it. Really appreciate Uh, it. And, you know, the insights into refereeing from a slightly different perspective is um, something to certainly take away and have a thought to think about, you know? I I love more managers and coaches and other people that are not referees to kind of understand the psychology and stuff that we go through, right? Because we love the game and so do they. And I think we just need to get that a little bit closer together to let everybody know. I, I agree. I, one, an area that I think would, might work really well, like a, something I'd advocate, is you know how every club they have like a safeguarding officer and they have to have like someone who's like a level two qualified coach and so on and so forth. I think every club should have someone that goes on the referee course, mm-hmm. even if it's just to maybe kind of see things from a refereeing perspective or to help like explain maybe why. Like I mentioned, referees are quite, I've never met a referee that is kind of like defensive if someone thinks they've made a mistake. But I think just understanding the process, why, and just appreciating, like, this is why I did that, um, I, I think goes down you know, really well for us and would help bridge that gap. Uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. We'll make it happen, shall we? Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. No problem, Stuart. Thank Thanks, you Stuart. very, very much. Cheers.